This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Liberation theology. It isn't theology, and it doesn't liberate. One of the many unfortunate fruits of the so-called spirit of Vatican II was something called liberation theology. A product of the overheated period after the disruptions of the late 60s, this school of thought promised to reconcile Catholicism and socialism. Of course, such a reconciliation is impossible in that no one can reconcile truth and lies. By the early 80s, liberation theology appeared to have run its course. However, with Pope Francis, liberation theology is back with a vengeance. Many Catholics, however, remain unaware of its dangers. Mr. Julio Laredo never lost sight of this destructive movement. In April 2022, the American TFP was delighted to release the English translation of his book titled Liberation Theology, How Marxism Infiltrated the Catholic Church. Today, the Return to Order moment brings you three excerpts from this book. The first is derived from Mr. John Horvath's foreword. It was published on www.tfp.org under the title New Book Shows Why Americans Must Be Concerned About Liberation Theology Today. Many look at liberation theology as a Latin American phenomenon that need not concern Americans. In 1971, Father Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian theologian, released the movement's seminal book, A Theology of Liberation, History, Politics, and Salvation, which claimed to represent, quote, the cry of the people, unquote. These ideas spread rapidly and then reached their peak in the 70s and 80s when they inspired the popular movements and basic Christian communities in left-agitated Latin America. In 1984, and later in 1986, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, CDF, condemned certain aspects of liberation theory, especially its use of Marxist analysis. Afterward, the movement slowly faded, and the most progressive elements in the Church moved on to environmentalism, homosexuality, race, and other leftist causes. However, liberation theology never disappeared. It is not over. Many are now surprised to see that it is having a worldwide resurgence. It shows up in President Biden's inaugural address. The president's words, quote, a cry for survival comes from the planet itself, unquote, is an echo of the more famous, the cry of the poor, the cry of the earth, from Leonardo Boff, a leading liberation theologian and a friend of Pope Francis's. It is said that he was consulted during the writing of the encyclical Laudato Si. Indeed, liberation theology is off the back burner and into the headlines, where it enjoys the favor of the media and liberal establishment. Its message has come charging back with more radicalized doctrines and applications. Thus, liberation theology, how Marxism infiltrated the Catholic Church, could not be timelier. Like Father Gutierrez, Author Julio Laredo is a Peruvian. He has studied Latin American problems firsthand and has lectured on the Catholic left and liberation theology for over 40 years. Currently living in Italy, 
where he is the president of the Italian Association of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP, Mr. Laredo is a well-known writer, speaker, and commentator on church affairs. Mr. Laredo understands that liberation theology is built on powerful myths that, once debunked, render it much less dangerous. He also knows its points of vulnerability that allowed him to deliver a stunning broadside against this theological current that threatens the church. Readers of this book will learn four important lessons that will help them understand better this theology that may soon be coming to a parish nearby. The first one is that liberation theology is not theology. The body of work related to liberation theology would place it more in the fields of political philosophy and sociology. Its Marxist analysis, and especially its class struggle dialectics, has caused immense damage throughout the world. Its use of the theology label and vocabulary makes it more dangerous since it relies upon people's goodwill toward religion. Resorting to such sociological sources is tragic, considering the Church's vast treasury of social teaching based on the writings of saints, doctors, and theologians. Unlike the Church, which promotes love of neighbor and social harmony for the love of God, liberation theology excludes all supernatural means of dealing with misfortune and poverty. Moreover, Liberation theology is rooted in egalitarianism and fueled by hatred, not love. Liberation theology also lacks originality, as it recycles old philosophical errors, changing only the exterior packaging. The second lesson is that liberation theology is part of a process. The author is well-trained in the School of Historical Analysis of Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. The noted Catholic thinker taught that historical currents follow processes that are not always clear to ordinary laymen. However, a careful look at a current will reveal the origin of the error. At times, an evil may seem to disappear, then suddenly reappear, fortified and worse than ever. Once seen as a process, however, such currents are easier to refute. Thus, Mr. Laredo shows that liberation theology did not suddenly appear on the horizon. Readers of this book will find the process meticulously traced in its development from theological and sociological currents after the French Revolution and the advance of liberalism. He cuts to the root of where liberation theology originated. Yet another lesson comes through the author dispelling the myth of liberation theology being a purely Latin American phenomenon that sprang from the cry of the people. The real story is more complex and less dramatic. The origins of this so-called theology are much more based on European theological currents than the reflections of villagers in the Andes. Highly educated priests and laymen formulated its doctrine, not the poor subject to its process of conscientization. The final lesson is that liberation theology threatens us here in America. This theology has found its way into the American context. 
It has long infiltrated Hispanic Catholic communities and parishes in the United States. Catholic leftists like Dorothy Day and others saw liberation theology as inspiration for their activism. In addition, many liberation theology theories that applied only to the poor are now used for identity politics and the present woke revolution. American readers will appreciate the exhaustive research that will allow them to see liberation theology in this new light. As with all cancerous movements inside the church, the whole church is affected. The movement has metastasized and can be found everywhere in the church now, especially under the reign of Pope Francis. Readers need to be aware that the final goal of liberation theology is not to introduce another manner of looking at problems inside the church. Its worldview excludes all others. The goal is to transform the church, her structures and doctrines, into a new church and religion. That is why it is so dangerous. Like all things leftist, the author shows that liberation theology will harm the people it claims to help. The poor are the victims of this strange theology. Mr. Laredo recalls the metaphor that liberation theology is a lead-filled life jacket for the poor. Indeed, it drags them to destruction. Its proposed political structures impoverish nations and consign the poor to abject misery. This book comes at the right time for Catholic American readers. It will prove useful for those seeking to understand the crisis in the Church. By pointing out liberation theology's origins, core beliefs, and ruinous goals, Mr. Laredo aims readers... Mr. Laredo arms readers to oppose it better. However, the author's supernatural spirit also points to the need to resort to God and the Blessed Mother. They are the key to crushing this terrible heresy. Even though liberation theology comes out of the turbulence of the late 60s and early 70s, it has a history that goes way back to the French Revolution. Mr. Laredo outlined that process in the first part of his book. This excerpt is published on www.tfp.org under the title, How Christian Socialism Infiltrated into the Church. To understand the crisis inside the church, one must first look at the processes that led to the present situation inside the church. The roots of this crisis extend much farther back than the times of the Second Vatican Council. It can be seen in the appearance of Christian socialism in the 19th century. Indeed, the first manifestations of Christian socialism came directly from the French Revolution and thus predated social Catholicism. During the French Revolution, there were factions that, taking the motto of liberty, equality, fraternity to its ultimate consequences, adopted communist positions. The most prominent representative of this trend was François-Noël Brebeuf, called Gracchus, 1760-1797. Quote, 
The French Revolution is nothing but the precursor of another revolution, one that will be greater, more solemn, and which will be the last. Unquote. His idea, says historian Pierre Gaxot, is that the revolution had failed because it had not been carried out to the end. All the measures it had taken were good, but it was just the first step toward a radical reform of property, that is, toward the community of goods and works. Obviously, full collectivism would have been dictatorial, unquote. For those radical factions, one had to eliminate not only the king in the state, but also the king in society, the employer, and the king in the family, that is, paternal authority. The clearly utopian dream of a perfectly egalitarian and free society, without classes, property, or the monogamous family, loomed then on the horizon. Fascination with this dream brought about the so-called utopian socialism, represented in France by Claude-Henri de Saint-Simon, 1760-1825, Charles Fourier, 1772-1837, Louis Blanc, 1811-1882, Philippe Boucher, 1796-1865, and Pierre Proudhon, 1809 to 1865. Boucher exerted a particularly significant influence on the left wing of social Catholicism. Founder of the French Carbonari, Boucher converted to Catholicism in 1830, but did not abandon the socialist ideology. Alec Wiedler explains, quote, he found in Christianity a faith that promised to realize the equality and brotherhood of men and deliver them from the egoism that sets one against the other, unquote. Boucher then became an apostle of revolutionary Christianity, with words that seemed to come from the pen of a present-day liberation theologian, he proclaimed, quote, Christianity and revolution are the same thing. The church's only mistake is not to be revolutionary, unquote. Boucher's influence went beyond social Catholicism, penetrating even the liberal Catholic current. Some of his disciples joined the Dominican Order, which had been restored in France by a close friend of his, Father Henri Lacordaire, 1802-1861. This was the origin of the progressive wing in France's Dominican community, which played a central role in the development of neo-modernist theology and eventually of liberation theology itself. In the wake of the 1848 revolution, a Christian socialist current arose in France and many priests joined it. On April 29, 1849, a banquet of socialist priests was held in Paris with more than 600 guests, including clergy and workers. There were many toasts to, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, the father of socialism, unquote. In the closing speech, a priest proclaimed, Yes, citizens, I will say this at the top of my voice. I am a Republican Socialist priest. <laughs>
one of those who are called Red Republicans, but also a Catholic priest. Then, turning to the workman, he added, We want your emancipation. We will no longer allow the exploitation of man by man. Unquote. Interestingly, only three of the more than 30 priests present wore the cassock, while the remaining were in civilian clothes. Evidently, they wanted to emancipate themselves not only from employers, but also from ecclesiastical rules, flaunting a revolutionary spirit even in the field of tendencies. If utopian Christian socialism had no great following, at least in its public events, and remained a mere ideal on a distant horizon, that was not the fate of the socialism born of the left of social Catholicism in the late 19th century. In France, they usually indicate as a watershed the Workers' Conference held in Lyon in 1896. In Italy, it was the appearance in 1891 of the Fasci Democratici, Democratic Squads, inspired by Father Romolo Muri, 1870-1944. Initially a minority, the socialists grew in importance to the point of controlling large sectors of social Catholicism. However, the current never became a majority. The Pope's condemnations of socialism were clear and found an echo among the faithful. On the other hand, the Christian socialists could not count yet on a theology that would give them a doctrinal basis. Forced to choose between fidelity to the Church and socialist commitment, many opted for the latter. Such was the case with Father Mori. Although Pius IX had already addressed some aspects of the social question, the first great synthesis of Catholic social doctrine came from Leo XIII, 1878-1903. The 1891 encyclical Rerum Novarum is rightly considered the cornerstone of the Church's social teaching. It was the first to deal comprehensively with problems related to the social question or the social upheaval caused by the Industrial Revolution. It is interesting to note that Leo XIII started by denouncing the tendential aspects of the social question even before dealing with the doctrinal ones. In fact, he blamed the ardent desire for novelty that, for a long time, began to agitate people and would naturally move from the political order to the socioeconomic one. He thus condemns socialism, calling it a false remedy and an unacceptable solution. While rejecting the abuses of unbridled capitalism, the Pope clarifies that the Church approves some foundations of the market economy as derived from the natural order. On private property, he teaches, quote, There is no need to bring in the state. Man precedes the state and possesses, prior to the formation of any state, the right of providing for the substance of his body. Private ownership is in accordance with the law of nature. The authority of divine law adds its sanction forbidding us in severest terms even to covet that which is another's. 
Private ownership is the natural right of man. Unquote. The freedom to make employment contracts and to own and manage business enterprises stems from this natural right. Leo XIII goes on to list, along with the rights arising from private property, those deriving from work as something inherent in the person that cannot be limited either by the employer or by the state, including the right to free association, all of it within a hierarchical design that includes the need for social inequalities. In addition to the precepts of justice, social relations must be inspired by charity. And since this field is outside the scope of the law, it follows that only with the practice of Christian virtue can one attain social balance. In the encyclical Graves de Comunie, Leo XIII reiterates, For it is the opinion of some, and the error is already very common, that the social question is merely an economic one, whereas, in point of fact, it is, above all, a moral and religious matter, and for that reason must be settled by the principles of morality and according to the dictates of religion." Unquote. Unfortunately, sectors of social Catholicism read Pope Leo XIII's encyclicals in a different light, starting a period of hermeneutic abuse that was clarified only in 1903 by Pope St. Pius X with the motto proprio fin dalla prima. Some people even claimed that Rerum Novarum was opposed to the dark syllabus errorum of Pius IX. Gabriella de Rosa writes, Rerum Novarum destroyed many misgivings and resistance among intransigent Catholics, giving confidence to the most reckless generation of social Christians, to the Christian democratic current, which eventually outgrew the old guard, unquote. All European Christian democratic currents received a boost from Rerum Novarum and felt comforted in their action, tending to prove that a priest, a militant Catholic, was not on the employer's side. Father Luigi Sturzo recalls how the publication of the encyclical Rerum Novarum aroused, quote, great wonder. It seemed almost socialistic, and even the more liberal governments that were in fear in their bourgeois soul. Many churchmen also feared that new force united to the people. Unquote. Thus, Christian socialism gained momentum by distorting Catholic teaching. Its growth prepared the ground for the errors later found in liberation theology. Certainly, many events prepared the way for liberation theology. However, it would have been ignored except for the fact that many people were mentally prepared for it. They were prepared because their minds were framed by something called liberal Catholicism. In his essay titled, The Essence of Liberal Catholicism, Mr. Laredo defines the mindset and how it helped plant the seeds of liberation theology. In dealing with liberal Catholicism, we must distinguish between underlying passional proclivities and doctrines, properly speaking. 
The first thing we find in liberal Catholics is a profound yearning for an egalitarian and permissive state of affairs. Their natural need to justify these leanings prompted them in specific ideological trends, fledgling ideas in the course of elaboration that initially collided with their own religious and social upbringing and habits. In some cases, this clash with the old doctrines and habits prevented the liberal Catholic's passional yearnings from producing its full consequences. In others, instead, the very dynamism of those leanings made fully explicit the revolutionary germs contained in them. The degree of radicalism of the liberal Catholics' explicit doctrines depended on the outcome of this clash and on their caution to avoid a complete break with orthodoxy. Accordingly, several currents appeared within liberal Catholicism, some closer to orthodoxy, others expressing clearly erroneous doctrines. Nevertheless, all of them were moved by a liberal mentality tendentially opposed to all authority and, above all, basically optimistic regarding the new times ushered in by the 1789 revolution. In opposition to the double principle of hierarchy and authority, viewed as oppressive and offensive to human dignity, Two notions express well the liberal spirit taken to its final consequences. Absolute equality and complete liberty. A person with a liberal mentality, subject to another's authority, hates first of all the particular yoke that weighs upon him. In the second stage, he hates all authority in general and all yokes. And even more, the very principle of authority considered in the abstract. Because he hates all authority, he also hates superiority of any kind. Thus, the liberal spirit can lead to the most radical and complete egalitarianism. Accordingly, in various degrees of explicitness, liberal Catholics propounded equality in the political sphere with the suppression, or at least attenuation, of inequality between the governing and the governed. The authority to govern, they claimed, along with Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, does not come from God, but from the people. The more consistent among them condemned monarchy and aristocracy as being intrinsically evil and acclaimed democracy as the only legitimate form of government. They also endeavored to establish equality in the structure of society by attenuating differences derived from the right of property, whence some clear tendencies toward collectivism. In sum, Liberalism implied a partial or total emancipation of man from the supernatural and moral orders, as well as a partial or total emancipation of the individual citizen from political authority. Both cases contained an affirmation of the sovereignty of the individual conscience. German Jesuit theologian Father Hermann Gruber writes, quote, a fundamental principle of liberalism is the proposition, it is contrary to the natural, innate, and inalienable right and liberty and dignity of man to subject himself to an authority, the root, rule, measure, and sanction of which is not in himself. As we said, 
Liberal Catholics presented their positions not so much as logical deductions from some theoretical postulates, but as an unavoidable demand of the spirit of the times. In their view, some excesses notwithstanding, the 1789 revolution had the undeniable merit of sweeping away the oppressive structures of the Ancien Regime and opening the era of modernity under the aegis of liberty. This course of events, they contended, was irreversible, and the sooner the Church accepted the fait accompli and adapted herself to the new situation, the less traumatic would be her transition to modernity. In other words, a comprehensive revolution had changed the civil sphere and was now imposing those changes on the church. Here then, in all its dramatic force, the problem of the relationship between the church and the world, a problem as old as the church herself and always at the heart of events that see the bride of Christ carry out her salvific mission among men. While absolutely avoiding here the discussion of a topic as complex as it is delicate, we must nonetheless note that it has two aspects, a theoretical and a practical one. Theoretically, is the church the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Or is the world the salt of the church and her light? This is a theological and pastoral question which the Supreme Magisterium has often addressed. For purposes of this study, however, the practical question is the more vital. The world in which the 19th century Catholics needed to operate had two conflicting types of influence. On the one hand, there were still important remnants of the medieval Christian order, like the bruised reed and smoking flax, as it were, See Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, although even weaker and more marginal. On the other hand, like devastating cockle spoiling the good harvest of wheat, see Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 25, one had the new world, resulting from centuries of revolutionary process, of which the revolution of 1789 was the most recent chapter in stark contrast to the destructive revolution. For Catholics faithful to the magisterium, relating to the world meant to defend, sustain, and restore the remnants of Christian civilization. Therefore, they conceived their apostolate in the world as essentially conservative and counter-revolutionary. Far from allowing herself to be carried away by the revolutionary vortex produced by the father of lies, the church established herself as the bulwark of order, teaching the unchanging truth to a humanity drifting away from the ways of God. Liberal Catholics took a diametrically opposed position. The revolutionary process was essentially good, and the Church should conform her teaching, structure, and liturgy to the modern world to avoid becoming anachronistic and a hateful obstacle to human progress. Hence, the classical definition of liberal Catholicism as the party of those who wanted the Church to reconcile with the revolution. As we will see, Liberal Catholicism sought to baptize the Revolution of 1789, 
just as liberation theology would later seek to baptize that of 1917. Quote, Catholics are inferior to their adversaries because they have yet to take sides with the great revolution that gave birth to the new society, to the modern life of peoples, proclaimed Count Charles Forbes René de Montalembert, 1810-1870, in a famous 1863 speech. Quote, The future of modern society depends on two questions. Correct democracy through liberty and reconcile Catholicism with democracy. We accept, we invoke the principles and liberties proclaimed in 1789, unquote. The French Revolution was not the only event to influence liberal Catholicism. Striving to adapt the Church to the modern world, more precisely to its revolutionary aspects, Many European liberal Catholics were naturally attracted to the country that, in their view, represented modernity in its truer form, the United States of America. The Great Republic of America had found a constitutional framework in the liberal mold that should serve as a model for Europe while avoiding the excesses of radical Jacobinism. By assuring non-interference by the state in religious affairs, the First Amendment, the U.S. Constitution established a de facto separation between church and state and, therefore, religious freedom. While, on the one hand, the Catholic Church does not enjoy the patronage of the state, on the other hand, she is entirely free to preach her beliefs. According to liberal Catholics, this situation was ideal, as it enabled the Catholic Church to join the free market of religions and compete with other confessions for a niche in the hearts of Americans, free from the prejudices and parochial rivalries that haunted religious life in Europe. In other words, for liberal Catholics, The United States was the living proof that a liberal Catholic program was indeed feasible. It is no surprise, then, that in his inaugural address at the Académie Française in 1860, occupying the chair that used to belong to Alexis de Tocqueville, the liberal Catholic leader, Father Lacordaire, called the United States the, quote, prophecy and vanguard of the future state of Christian nations, unquote. This conception was wholly blind to the deleterious infiltration of the naturalist spirit inside the Church, a spirit later condemned by Pope Leo XIII as Americanism. On the other hand, it was founded on a unilateral interpretation of American reality that is now refuted by modern historiography. This concludes Liberation of Theology. It isn't theology and it doesn't liberate. Thank you so much for listening. The book, Liberation Theology, How Marxism Infiltrated the Catholic Church, is available for those who wish to read and study it. The book can be purchased over the internet at store.tfp.org books. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which we're listening to it. 
Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people would be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you could help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.